0: It's The Wonky
1: Show, Mark's been at Tory Party Conference, we'll catch up on all the gossip, OFS is applying a spelling test across the sector, SA mails are going to be banned, and is online diversity training more hassle than it's worth? It's all coming up.
2: Actually, nobody is disputing that written English, written communication is important. I think, you know, if you actually look at the assessment policies, most of them will stress that effective communication is an important part of learning outcomes. What's being picked out here is very very specifically spelling, punctuation and grammar.
1: Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us munch our way through conference carbs and coffee, as usual, a phalanx of fantastic guests. In Gravesend, Selina Bolingbrook is a consulting fellow with the Help Partnership. Selina, your
2: highlight of the week, please. A uh, bit of a slow week for me, Jim, um, but I was pleased to see we had some uh, inclement weather Monday night, Tuesday here in Gravesend, and everything that I'd spent time fixing over my summer holiday Days, has not yet broken has not yet flooded so that was my highlight <laughs> excellent and in South East
1: London Amatei Doku is a consultant at the Now's Group Amatei, your highlight of the week please
3: oh well it's got to be the um, respite that we had for some hours from both WhatsApp and Instagram uh, and Facebook uh, the other day, um, and I was slightly disappointed to see when I went back onto WhatsApp, I only had one message. So we okay.
1: back up, back on your Bebo account. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. And in Winchmore Hill, Mark Leach is Wonky's editor in chief. Mark, your highlight of the week, please.
4: Uh, hi, Jim. Uh, my highlight of the week was the, the wonky dinner at Conservative Party Conference in Manchester. Uh, we do this every year because it's always fun to kind of create a little HE enclave uh, of all the sector types that come to party conferences, a safe space for them, uh, and just so nice to reconnect with so many people not seen since before COVID.
1: Excellent. So, yes, funnily enough, we start this week with Conservative Party Conference. This week, party members, MPs, lobbyists and the media and a whole bunch of other hangers-on descended on Manchester for the annual shindig. So, Mark, do we know what levelling up means yet?
4: Well, it's, it's a work in progress. And I think that's kind of the point of this, uh, this party conference. It was jolly interesting, though, to listen in on some of the debates happening across the Conservative Party when it comes to levelling up and a host of other, uh, issues relating to economy and, and society. Now, for, for those who haven't been to HE, to, to Tory party conference before, it's, it's, it's never very strong on policy detail. Um, we were, we were told that Boris Johnson was going to give away some rabbits. Um, and in his speech this week, but that ended up being, again, quite light on detail. Um, because the elephant in the room, uh, and the, the many sweaty rooms across Manchester Central Convention Complex was the spending review and, um, lots of decisions pending later this month. So we did, we didn't get any big, uh, big giveaways, but lots of interesting conversations about levelling up, as I say. So I think for, for me, one of the big takeaways, uh, was that, uh, d- despite you know lots of valiant efforts by different sectors and different industries to to try and define what levelling up means for them and uh, kind of try and put to meet on meet on the bones, lots of interesting chatter about how um, kind of none of that matters and you know the, the 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 sort of the grand economic mega projects and slogans don't really mean anything to to anyone. Uh, and so some of the some of the more interesting conversation was about how levelling up could actually do things for people in their lives. I know it sounds controversial, but um, <laughs>
1: A I, I, the, the, I don't know about. I mean, the impression I got, Mark, was it was all a bit monkey tennis. Insofar as you know, there's a phrase, and then everyone's like, "Monkey tennis." Oh yeah, we'll deliver monkey tennis. We're the sector that can help you deliver monkey tennis. And it, it's like, you, I think we forget sometimes in HE, Don't we? That every other sector is trying to put, you know, f- fit themselves into the, the latest kind of fashionable thing.
4: I mean, that's that's just that's just how policy works, yeah. I mean, that's just that's just policy for you, Jim. I mean, Rachel Wolf from Public First has a has a really good line about this, which was that you know, leveling up's not going to do anything. Thing unless uh, uh, unless people can see improvements, you know their their streets look nicer. They can get appointments with the the local GP. You know if that's and where they've struggled before, that's what that's the sort of thing that levelling up means to them. So um, and and implicit in that, I think, is some advice to universities, which is um, you know maybe come down from the the ivory tower and look at how if you, if you really want to contribute to levelling up, not just the slogan. Look at how you can open your doors to engage more people, and I think that does actually really chime with how a lot of the sectors thinking about the civic agenda and things like that. So the the, the, the two can be uh, quite hand in, in hand. Um, and there was there was this
1: interesting exchange with Gove, wasn't there? So uh, before you talk about that, let's uh, hear a clip.
5: Now I wouldn't be much of a journalist. I have a very quick question here to Michael Crick. Yes, um,
1: Mr. Gove, uh, there are five universities in Greater Manchester. Wouldn't one good way to level up, maybe a bit more long term? would be to establish new universities in places like Doncaster, Grimsby, Barrow, Planet perhaps and some of those other northern cities and towns that don't have them right now because it, it generates economic activity particularly if those universities concentrate on STEM subjects. Thank you.
0: Uh, yes I agree.
5: There we are, that was a Fanet University here we come everyone. <laughs> well, just on that, on that my obviously, yes. there is a big focus on vocational education mm. at the moment, and skills plays a big part mm. in to levelling up. You know, what do you think about Tony Blair's famous half the university going to half the country going to university? Was that a mistake? And do you think less people should go to university? I don't think the
0: ambition was a mistake. I don't think fewer people should go to university, but I do think it is the case that for a long uh, period there has been a neglect of what is required in order to ensure that you have uh, technical and qualifications, of sufficient rigour, which are also those which the uh, uh, employers want to need. Um, and that's why I think that uh, uh, Michael's point is so important. Um, you can have higher education institutions, you can call them universities. There's a difference between what um, some universities offer, um, which is attractive, but um, uh, necessarily uh, uh, of, uh, what's the word, uh, only perhaps suitable for, you know, some, and what we should be concentrating on, which is precisely ensuring that people can have at least three years of high quality technical and vocational education in scientific engineering and mathematical subjects, which prepare them better for the world of work. Now, it may well be that the institution that you attend is uh, called a college rather than a university, but if it's high quality, if you're particularly working closely with Industry and at the end of that, that you have a, a qualification that is uh, deemed rigorous, then that seems to me to be absolutely the way in which we should think of going. Um, and uh, in a way, it's not as though we're reinventing the wheel; it's not as though we're going back to polytechnics. But you know, one of the five universities that um, uh, the Michael mentioned, UMISP was founded on the principle that uh, you should do precisely that. And I and I think that um, uh, uh, if you look at other countries which have been both successful economically and also successful in terms of social mobility, um, people have been in education for longer, but the education hasn't necessarily been, I'm nothing against this, being in a seminar room uh, discussing the uh, hermeneutics of Spider-Man. Um, it's been, um, you know, looking at uh, uh, some of the more, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, directly scientifically rigorous routes
5: into work bad news for scholars of spider-man
4: well this was a fascinating exchange and michael crick is absolutely brilliant at asking questions and it was was absolutely perfect question that right there because um what i think that shows is that michael gove it's a lot has been written a lot of ink been spilled about how michael gove is there to do leveling up but also implicitly win the next general election and i can't help but wonder if michael gove has his eye on actually the next kind of several elections because i think he's smart enough to know that that Plugging plugging some, some of the desperate higher education cold spots with some sort of a provision um, is going to improve lots of people's life chances in, in lots of important ways. That definitely runs counter to the prevailing narrative coming out from the rest of his party, which is about prioritising vocational and skills routes. The two can go hand in hand. And, you know, it's not like we're going to see a massive university challenge style uh, universities kind of building as, as as was tried to kick off in 2008. But I think if he's thinking about the next several elections... Um, we're going beyond, you know, you, you couldn't, for example, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't get a university up and running by, by 2023 or 2024, the next general next election, certainly wouldn't be making a tangible difference to people's lives. But if he's thinking about the long term, he's smart enough to know that higher education is a really great way of levelling up literally um, that is a really interesting data point and I think a number of people in the sector want to capitalise on that conversation with him I
2: think one of the things that we might reflect on in terms of um, the university challenge as Mark mentioned the 2008 uh, last sort of gasp of breath from the uh, last Labour government in terms of expanding university centres in cold spots in the country is um, some of those that opened then have now closed um, <laughs> and uh i i think that probably on reflection there you know there does need to be this real consideration about what that university center will be doing in the long term both in terms of student demand but also this really crucial part of the leveling up agenda which is about that intersection between higher education further education and employment and industrial growth and i think part of the policy gap that remains and and, and actually i would say this across you know looking across all the party conference this season is um, we don't have sufficient joined up strategic planning uh, across all of those areas. You know, we don't even really manage to join up the post-tertiary uh, sectors. Um, but, you know, with no industrial strategy, and we, we've heard a lot this week from Boris Johnson about uh, his, you know, the, the, the reasons why we are struggling with productivity. I think, first of all, people are not convinced by um his analysis of the problem but more importantly at the moment from a you know government department perspective there is no policy and there is no strategy to uh, provide solutions to that so i think from my perspective we know as a sector how much uh, value universities can bring not just to individuals but to communities and to um, to industry uh, and i think all universities will be you know, ready to do their bit in their local area. There is never a presumption that they would not want to do that. But people need long term strategy and you know help, helpful funding, infrastructure to be able to put their investment of time and resource into that.
1: Amate, here we are at the you know the end of uh, party conference season, and I mean actually you know there's an argument that says all of the party conferences were pretty light on you know grasping the big challenges of the day where, what what's your sense of where you know wider politics is at in terms of kind of solving people's problems and you know addressing the big global challenges
3: look i mean i completely agree with, with selena's last point about that kind of lack, lack of strategy uh, but i think i think it's across across the whole um across the whole the whole spectrum. Universities are in a really weird place in terms of, you know, this big narrative of them being caught up in the cultural uh, d- debates and discussions, which means... That, that actually puts it slightly at odds with this idea that you'd want to sort of invest more in them because they're seen as sort of problematic. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think, um, either Labour or, or the conservatives have, have really grasped fully, um, or made that calculation about how universities can be key to, um, that, 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 that leveling up piece and, 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 um, really improving chances and experiences and opportunities for people, which I think is, is, it's quite odd i think the sector does have some responsibility for that um i think the approach to to uh, th- th- there's been too much of an approach of asking for bits here and there asking for funding for this asking for freeze like you know caps on this asking for you know we're actually what we haven't done is as far as i'm aware at least made the the much more holistic case of if you invest x in he in this way um this is the return for you in by 2030 2040. I've not seen that done and I know that's going to be quite hard because we have a very big and diverse sector but I've not really seen anything really compelling to set the agenda with either with either political party in this space
1: mark you've uh you know you've been watching these things for a long time where where, where do you think our sort of you know our politics is at as a uh, <laughs> after this little season
4: well I, I, it just confirms to me that things are basically as random as as ever I mean you say lack of strategy I mean I think that's 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 pretty. Pretty generous. I mean, this is a government, you know. I mean, and I think led by a person who likes to make decisions quite at last minute on the hoof, goes with his gut. Um, and you know, and I think that you know, I think that filters down to all sorts of kinds of policy making. The sort of dangerous thing about that, though, is that you know, you can you, you get different kind of power centres emerging. And you know, Whitehall. I think a, a lot of people kind of imagine Whitehall is like a ship with the captain giving orders and and someone steering the ship. It's actually lots of different centres of power. Um, and of which the I, I tend
1: to think fine. of it as like a, a, a set of bumper cars at the fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: That's <laughs> another good way. Another good way of thinking about it. And, and what's interesting is, you know, you're, you, you get people working on agendas and furthering them in, in, in surprising ways. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot of, there's a lot going in, on in the Department for Education right now relating to universities. Um, more of that we're going to see later this year. There's a lot going in the Treasury. Uh, because we know the spending review is going to have uh, some significant pain for universities coming up, and the two are obviously closely closely related there 's a lot going on in bays and science policy, so I think the best the sector can do is to pick up all of these different strands and engage with them and and, and kind of just assume that no one 's talking to each other. I think you just really have to rehearse everything from the from the ground up every, every single time i think that's, that's kind of, that 's kind of fine it, it does also present a, you know, a, bit, a bit of an opportunity, but it also shows you know i mean I, I have it on good authority that the the, the funding consultation that was going to have details of, um, you know, the graduate repayment threshold and everything else, was largely agreed in Whitehall. Went to Number Ten for final approval, and that was right before the the Afghanistan debacle. Um, and literally, the kind of the slate was wiped clean, and it, it's really been stuck in Number Ten ever since. And now it's, it's it's kind of going to have to be part of the part of the spending review, and it just shows kind of how much. Uh, external events can, can affect these kind of things and, and could well affect the actual decision because you know two months is a very long time in politics and these things have a, have a habit of getting renegotiated as, as, as kind of other numbers are filled in.
1: Well exciting times. Good. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
5: Hi I'm Libby Homer and I'm Director of Student and Library Services at Anglia Ruskin University and Chair of the Sconnell Content Strategy Group. This week I've written the start about the start of a collective action to bring together a group looking for a substantial and meaningful change in the e-textbook and e-book market and really launching a call for action by this group. It's an unprecedented call for action for libraries and publishers to ensure that we have sustainable models for, for, for providing students and other readers with access to electronic books and electronic tax, textbooks. And the call is supported by Sconnell, JISC, Philips, the eBook SOS campaign, RLUK, NAG, and a number of purchasing consortia. Really, we're in a situation where models of purchasing are unsustainable and based on outdated beliefs on how people used to buy physical textbook copies. We are asking publishers to be transparent about pricing, offer new models for purchasing and allow libraries access to what they have paid for in perpetuity. None of this is particularly unreasonable, but it does promote fairness and inclusivity. The situation that we have at the moment and the way that we buy this sort of material is outdated. It lacks transparency and more importantly is denying fair access to not only our students and staff at HE institutions but also, for example, NHS clinicians and the wider public. So I'd like to encourage podcast listeners to take a read of The Call for Action and utilise it when working with publishers. We're just getting started on this one, so we welcome your thoughts uh, on this. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Now, meanwhile, this week, the government has announced that it will outlaw commercial essay writing services in England as part of the Skills and Post Sixteen Education Bill. Amatei, this has been a long time coming.
3: Absolutely. Um, so as you said, um, honestly, I, I was just reflecting on this, having you know been you know involved in um, obviously NUS and student politics. I mean, this has been something that um, has been running for, for such a long time. So, yes, absolutely, um, a long time coming um and really really good news that um the um the, the regulations would make it illegal to provide arranged or advertised cheating services for uh, commercial gain um and uh, it's been reported that this has uh, increased during during the uh, pandemic so really really good to see that and obviously a lot of work has gone in from QAA um from UK from NUS and other students and and student unions um as well i think just a couple of reflections. The first, it's sort of surprising it's taken this long, given that it's, th- there's not a great deal to be, um, you know, it's, it's sort of no skin off the government's back to, to, to do this. Um, so it's slightly curious as to why it's, why it's taken so long, um, to do. Um, but I think there are two things coming out of it. One, it needs to now be effectively enforced. So it's unlikely that, you know, these people are going to, um, shut up shop and just go home and you know go and do something else um uh, but uh, at, at the same time we've got to recognize um and think about what are the factors that that are driving students um, into um using these services as well um and I think that's we've really got to think about the support um for students um academically and also um uh, in term pastorally in terms of welfare as well to make sure that um students are well supported that you know this sort of practice doesn't even um, come on their radar, particularly, I think, for international students who, you know, passing or or not passing isn't the same as for for a domestic student. Um, It has such bigger implications, both in terms of the amount of investment they've made into their education, but also in terms of uh, visa um, requirements and the rest of it. So I'd like to see us really rally around and think about, uh, again, you know, for those students who uh, are... Using uh, SA Mills, you know, what is the support available that we can offer?
1: Selina, last time I checked, the internet allowed you to talk to people in other countries than England. So this is, I mean, this this isn't going to make a blind bit of difference, is it?
2: No, I, I, I think that that's the key thing. You can create and pass a law to outlaw uh these services but i think it's going to be very difficult to implement you know very few companies are going to offer themselves explicitly as essay cheating services what they will offer is a service that provides uh you know model answers um it, it, it illustrative essays there's a million different ways and we already know from other parts of um, social media that there can be things that are you know criminally outlawed um, but they are not uh, that it's it's not possible to to really implement and to deal with um, some of the uh, services that are out there I think as Amate said the real way to tackle this is about thinking about assessment, thinking about student support. I mean, I think we all know from a teaching and a learning point of view that really good quality assessment is not something that happens just at the end of the course. It's uh, generally, um, it's, it's formative in, in in its process. And uh, you know, as an academic, when you're assessing your students, if you know your students, um, you can tell. I, you know, I, I've certainly had that experience myself where you can tell if somebody is using other people's words, whether they've plagiarized or whether they've just wholesale taken an essay from a commercial provider. Um, so I I think it leads to more you know deeper questions really but that puts universities uh, in a very difficult place as Amity said I think over the last year there have been certainly some opportunities uh, from a teaching and learning perspective but far more challenges that have arisen when we have pivoted to having uh, so much done online.
1: Amity look you know if if we're worried about uh, people writing essays partly because you know we're probably only 18 months away from AI being able to write your essay for you let alone a student in another country and we worry about high stakes exams, um, and we're also, you know, and and if the only alternative is, you know, a kind of, you know, everyone does a presentation or a, you know, a viva, what what do you what do you do next? Because you know, th- 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 these more creative types of assessment just don't feel scalable in a period where we're probably going to have the unit of resource crunched on us.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good. Really good question, and I, you know, I don't have the kind of specific answer, but but I do think it it needs to be looked at, and I think it needs to be looked at across the sector. I think many universities are probably steeped, not probably are steeped in the traditions of um, uh, assessment and feedback. It, it's it's comfortable. We, we sort of know how uh, the exam cycles run. To it, even it's sort of the the structure of the exam year, uh, sorry, the structure of the year is is, is you know a, a lot of it comes down to to when the exam seasons is and the rest of it so it's going to require a real um um real shift but it, i think i think now really is the time like i just don't understand you, you, don't, you don't even need essay writing skills in academia <laughs> um you know it, it would be more effective if you're trying to train train people for academia to get them to work together collaboratively on on papers um uh, and it's certainly not something that is is um used in, in the outside world um i've not you know written any essays since <laughs> I've, I've i've left so and uh, we all know this we all know this but we, we, we kind of just carry on but it, it is going to require a, a big shift and yeah it might not be scalable but that might not be the right sort of question really it's it's what is the most effective way uh, to ensure that students are achieving the, the learning objectives that, that that they have and i I, I really don't see um, the sort of traditional model that we use of exams as the solution to that. Mm.
1: Mark, obviously in other parts of uh, the education sector, the, all the gossip around Tory party conference was the government's restatement that exams are the best way to, uh, uh, to test students. But I mean, the other thing is, it, it was interesting, wasn't it, that Alex Berghart kind of appeared and launched this and he's just kind of emerged suddenly as, you know, someone who can get something done.
4: Well, uh, more, more than that, possibly, Jim, even um, Minister for Students. Do you remember that? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so so alex burkhart has in the reshuffle that so it took a long time for all the different bits to filter down um in in whitehall but alex burkhart's joined michelle dondon as a um as a minister for apprenticeships and skills but he does have a surprising amount of higher education in his brief um including student experience wp university's response to covid and all, all sorts all sorts of things and um, he was given the announcement of the SA Mills, uh, ban this week at Tory party conference, which is a hard policy. And we can definitely criticize, you know, its effectiveness over long term and, uh, different types of assessment that, you know, what might be needed in the future. But, you know, f- ministers don't often get given policy to announce at conference. So that's, you know, that's quite, that's very interesting. He also is a former academic himself. He was a, um, history uh lecturer at king's i believe um and he's worked in number 10 and he's also very impressive when you see him speak about education and um, he's got a lot to say he's he's, he's pretty thoughtful so um i, I i'm i'm, I'm going to hazard that we're going to see a lot more of him in the coming months Um, and he's definitely someone that the sector is going to uh, uh, need to take seriously.
1: Now, every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe. Here's the hidden history of H.E.
6: So the past degree was the original degree. Reforms in the 19th century led to the creation of honours exams, top-ups, whereby you course, but you added an honours exam. You could have more than one honours exam, as more were added. Slowly the requirements for honours became more onerous, so the requirements for the past degree faded away. In the 19th century, this led to a clear distinction between the reading men and the past men. The reading men, who were following the honours courses, grew in number. The past men were seen as a good part of the mission of the university, what Vivian Green describes as the finishing schools of the upper and middle classes. There were plenty of examples of how past men got on perfectly well with their studies, but not so well with the examinations. As an example, uh, Henry Chaplin uh, was uh, chastised by the Dean of Christchurch, uh, who said, As far as I can gather, you seem to regard Christchurch as a hunting box. You're hardly ever in college, and I must request you to either vacate your rooms to make way for someone who could benefit from their studies at the university. The student replied, But what do you expect me to do? The Dean said, You must go in for an examination. And so He did. It was a bit of a novelty to him, but he did very well. So the dean summoned him back to say, you've done tremendously well with this. I must congratulate you on your excellent performance. But now you must go in for the honor schools. You've shown us your abilities. You will become a credit, not only to this house, but to the university. As I expect, you'll be very successful. But Chaplin said, if only you told me before, I would have done so. But after my last interview with you, in which you intimated that I'd have to vacate my rooms, I'm very sorry to inform you that I arranged to go on a trip to the Rocky Mountains. Actually, passing the exams never really occurred to him that it was an important part. It was matriculating in the college that was the thing that he was after, and he was having a fine time. He didn't really want to take part in the exams at all. Other students would take part in the past exams, but survived to the end. So, in 1909, the Master of Cambridge's Magdalen College indicated that only a quarter of those people who'd matriculated actually took the degree. Very large numbers didn't take part in this. But past degrees continued. Honours degrees became the thing that the aspirant people would take, but a past degree would sit there. So by the time we get to the Robbins report, we have this confusion. There were still honours courses and past courses. Some universities you took the past course and then moved on to the honours course. Some places you could be on both simultaneously and you would decide where to go, but they were still treated as separate. Quite often they were seen as the solution to the specialisation question. You take a past degree, it was more general. Only those people who wanted to specialise could take an honours degree. But of course, we know, in the end, honours wins out. Pass becomes just the path that we now get to. If you don't succeed, you get a past degree. But that was the original part. That was the original degree that everyone took.
1: Now, next up, universities should consider students' spelling, punctuation and grammar when marking exams and assessments, the Office for Students argues in a new report. Selina, what on earth...
2: Yes, Jim. What on earth? The the, the whys and the wherefores. Um, I think we just have to go back a little bit into uh, – it's a very thin report. I don't usually mind that. Ten pages, though. Ten pages. I don't think Constitu- they're hard to
4: it, not I don't, I don't think they want to be doing this. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, um, I think I've written essays uh, without the support of essay Mills. Uh, I've had no heart in the subject that have at least gone beyond 10 pages. Um, so in that sense, in fact, I did think if you're going to write a report about assessment practices that uh, look at spelling, punctuation and grammar, I suggest and I am not the person to do this, but there could be a, a, a kind of wonky competition. So the first listener to alert us to the first grammatical spelling or punctuation mistake in this report. <laughs> uh, should win a wonky pen or badge or uh, mug. a selfie a a mug. selfie with Mark Leach. A mug, definitely a mug. If, if
4: Nicola wasn't going through that final report with a with a red pen, um, <laughs> yeah. she'd definitely win Mr. Trick. There,
2: there will still be mistakes there. I know that, yeah. I know that. So, um, yes, this rather, I think, rather bizarre report um, has its origins in a series of... Um, press reports in the week leading up to Easter back in April earlier this year. Uh, Because somebody had picked up Hull University, had an inclusive assessment policy, uh, which uh, asked staff, and I I use the quote marks from the newspaper article, not to dock marks for spelling errors, as requiring good written English could be seen as elitist. Um, So I I think what probably surprised everybody, and it was probably a a slow news period, given it was the week leading up to Easter, was the way that uh, quite a few phone-ins and uh, 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 newspapers jumped on it uh, in fact the daily mail actually claimed in their article that nearly half of university vice chancellors were concerned about their students literacy which uh, is not evidenced in any way and certainly <laughs> wouldn't accord to what um, what i would say nearly
1: half of the one VC we talked to
2: <laughs> i know half of him was concerned about his students literacy and um, these are not the things that we see coming up on uh, board of governors uh, risk registers or you know for regular discussion at SLT meetings or faculty board anytime soon. Um, so the poor and fortunate institutions that happened to be named in these press reports, it wasn't just Hull, Worcester as well and University of the Arts London. But but what's strange about this is this then uh, created sufficient impetus um, of concern on behalf of the regulator to decide in June that it needed to do a mini review um, and look at uh, several institutions. They don't actually tell us how many institutions. I'm going to come on to the method in a moment, but they don't actually tell us in this report how many institutions they spoke to. They they certainly don't tell us who they spoke to, what type of institutions, where they were based. Um, it is rather thin in that sense. Um, but I think that is the most bizarre thing, which is that, that just a few. Press reports was really the evidence on which OFS decided that there needed to be an examination of this subject and that there was valid concerns. Um, they kind of cite a um, CBI survey from two thousand and nineteen. Um, which said that uh, a quarter of their respondents were dissatisfied with the literacy and numeracy skills of young people. Um, but actually, in that same survey, those same employers said that they were much more dissatisfied with the fact that graduates didn't get relevant work experience and uh, that graduates' wider characteristics, behaviours and attributes were lacking in some way. But uh, we've not yet seen the OFS uh, mini-review of those particular areas. So, I think um, the evidence based on, on, on this kind of uh, the validity of concerns is pretty thin. The report itself, I mean, really what it sort of tries to focus on is the idea that inclusivity should not be at odds with the assessment of uh, technically proficient standards of English. It doesn't actually name what that constitutes, in terms of technically proficient standards of English, um, it's all about written English. I mean, there's nothing about kind of oracy or anything else, which is actually a skill that's increasingly more valued by employers and increasingly is one that's concentrated on more in, in secondary school um, uh, and I actually felt the report, you know, it, we'll see when we've had the wonky competition but I felt it was an example of you can have competent grammar but really poor communication because this report really did not say a lot and, and actually it, one of the things it lacked was clarity so not only did it not define what it meant by its uh, much used phrase, technically proficient standard of English, but um, the, the, the case studies and, and that's the way it was written, they kind of had these anonymous Institutions contributing um, essentially to a desk review of documentation. They didn't speak to any academics, obviously. They spoke to a they spoke to a few senior managers about the scope of the review, but they didn't actually speak to any teachers or assessors. They just did a desk review of some documents, um, and uh, I, I, I think one of the things that they 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 haven't really sort of focused on, because most university uh, assessment policies. Um, And and obviously, these things are very different by subject area and discipline, but they will refer to effective communication. So... It, you you know it may be okay to not mark down doesn't mean you won't pick up but it not mark down on a um, a spelling error as long as it doesn't compromise effective communication and I think most university academic boards that I've ever sat in that would be the, uh, the 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 thing that they would want to assess effective communication I don't think they necessarily would unless it was very specific to the subject want to start assessing technically proficient it's of English, not least because they might reasonably expect that is something that has been assessed lower down the education chain. And most universities will require. Um, a GCSE in English and Maths before entry. I mean, there will be, you know, some some sort of special conditions for those who don't have them. Um, but I don't think most universities would see it as their uh, their their assessment task, given all the other things that we're supposed to be concerned about, to be assessing technically proficient standards of English.
1: Amitai, you know, Selina gets to one of the vanishing points, doesn't she? Here, which is. You know, th- in theory, one of the ways you can read this is, you know, OFS demanding that QAA unilaterally rewrites all its subject benchmarks to include, you know, proficiency in written English.
3: Yeah. Um, and I guess there's a, there's another, I mean, I don't know whether <laughs> the, the, the sector, as it were, as a collective is actually going to to respond. I mean, I doubt it, but, um, I think it, th- there is a question here on what, what we know to be, um, uh, you know the the independence of of institutions in in this space and and whether or not on the list of you know priorities this is something that the regulator needs to step in and and and, and regulate on and I, and i think there's a strong argument for saying <laughs> that um for 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 the sector to potentially to potentially push back um i i think the 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 broader concern is um the fact that this has appeared this seems to be driven by um Press interest. I mean, there's, there's a bit saying that there's a 2019 survey from the CBI um, from employers. I mean, I think what the fact that employers weren't spoken to as part of this exercise, I think, is a bit of a gap as well. If you were to ask employers what were the sort of the top, you know, things that you you, you need improvements in terms of graduates w- with this feature, I don't know, but I think that should certainly have been uh, in scope. Um, and 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 as as I said, there's little engagement with students on this. Um, uh, As well, so it it does feel a bit concerning as to you know where who is actually setting the agenda on what the on what uh, needs to be regulated, and I think it's a real shame that we've lost that you know potentially more more kind of collective approach, that sort of co-regulatory approach that. We, 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 may have had at points previously, um, because then you could get the sex agreeing to focus on things that, you know, the sex as a whole thought were important.
4: Instead, instead, it is policy making by, you know, the, 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 telegraph, essentially, isn't it? I mean, you know, a minister reads a headline in, in the telegraph or the Daily Mail, absolutely screeching headline and calls up, uh, calls up James Wharton and says, you know, we've got to take action on this. And it's, and then James Wharton says, what can we do? And Nicholas says, well, we're going to have to stop the other, uh, if, if you want us to look into this, uh chair we 're going to have to stop this other much more in depth review about much more important things that we 've already agreed that we need to be looking at. Um, are you sure you want us to do that because uh this you know isn 't a real issue of concern outside of uh, opinion writers in the telegraph yes well it's 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 of concern in the minister 's office in Whitehall, so crack on please
2: but I think this is one of the things mark, which is you know it's what you might refer to as kind of the the chocolate teapot policy. On the surface, it just looks like a useless thing. But actually, it's really dangerous.
4: Yes, I 100% agree with that.
1: But it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I I, I dare a vice-chancellor to pop their head above the parapet on this one and say, do you know what? Actually, written English doesn't really matter for some subjects. I mean, it's a really bloody difficult thing to stand up and say, isn't it?
4: clever politics because it's a lose-lose for the sector. Because of that very reason, you can't push back against it, As much as uh, I agree that it would be amazing if the sector would. But the the optics of it are are just just terrible. You just have to duck and cover with this kind of stuff right now.
2: Yeah, but I think this is the thing. I mean, you know, press reports are not going to even read a 10-page font-size 13 report, (laughs) but... Actually, nobody is disputing that written English, written communication is important. I think, you know, if you actually look at the assessment policies, most of them will stress that effective communication is an important part of learning outcomes. What's being picked out here is very, very specifically spelling, punctuation and grammar. And I think, again, whilst again, that, that that's kind of important. It's, it's not the whole piece in terms of what constitutes effective communication. Uh, and that's the thing that um, will mostly be looked at when somebody is marking a student essay. But we were just talking about essays there. The other worrying thing is here that actually this report reads as if all university degrees, you know, are based on written essays. And we know that a very big proportion are not
4: yeah we're going we're going backwards here this is you know this is kind of sub victorian level of understanding of uh, of how education works and what about I mean, their
1: handwriting that's what i want
4: to know that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now should be seen but not heard
1: yes and so on now uh, what should the he sector prioritize to make real change on equality diversity and inclusion in the year ahead key's editor debbie mcvitty has been trawling responses to our community survey to find out
7: Hi, it's Debbie from Team Wonky, here to tell you about a brilliant event we've got coming up in partnership with Advance HE, all about equality, diversity and inclusion. It's called Living the Dream. It's on Thursday the 21st of October, and we'll be talking about building coalitions, strategies and leadership to deliver change across the whole of universities. We'll get a first look at the latest sector-wide data, we'll unpack the tricky idea of intersectionality, and we'll hear from the people who are working to make their dream of a more inclusive world reality. Over the summer, we polled Wonky Readers' views of equality, diversity and inclusion. And we found that there's a real appetite for greater cross-institutional coordination, more diverse representation in university leadership, and more opportunities to listen to and learn from marginalised voices. You can read more about those findings on monkey.com. So do please join us on the 21st of October. And if you're engaged in any kind of equality, diversity, and inclusion worker advocacy, you can get a discounted rate. Find out more and get your ticket on monkey.com forward slash events.
1: Now, finally, students are being told they must pass diversity and consent modules before they can begin their studies, and are marked wrong if they don't accept their personal guilt. Amate, what is the question to which online diversity courses are the answer?
3: So, this has come from um, well, there's sort of been a, a lot of a lot of reporting and, and pushback from the the the, the, court, the areas that you would expect um, around. Um, Attempts that, that universities are are, are making to um, include modules around equity diversity and inclusion um for students um and a, a lot actually during the sort of induction and onboarding um stage as well and really that's about tackling the the, the challenge um around um uh, uh, sort of the lack of understanding and um what some people call you know racial literacy um of of students coming to higher education um uh, and that's part of a wider drive to uh, improve the experiences for 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 students and staff of, of colour at, at universities. Understandably, um, um, not under, understandably generous, um, as you as as one would expect, um, that that's that's had quite a bit of quite a bit of pushback, um, and it's seen as sort of part. Of, you know, it's been seen as this sort of um, it's gone straight into the cultural. Um, Debate—it's um, seen as um, part of this attempt to, you know, to to um, you know, this drive to to make everything woke in universities, and um, lots of people are, are are upset about it. I think what's quite interesting, though, um, from, from my personal perspective, at least, is that I actually don't think um, these this 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 is a particularly effective way of um, actually building people's racial literacy um, or, or understanding of equity, diversity, and inclusion issues, you you really have, if you want to do this properly, you really have to get people in a room, a good facilitator who understands these issues, and talk this stuff out, get people to understand, um, to unpack their own biases, their own um, perspectives, their own experiences, um, and to take them on that journey and understanding the implication of certain actions and behaviours, and, and you, know, sonar- you need scenarios in there as well. So uh, th- the whole debate is kind of going in circles, really, because you've got, on the one hand, um, Universities, some universities implementing this, I think, as, as a bit of a tick box. We can say we've done, we've got the training, the online training, bam, we've, we've done it. Um, that means that you know we've ticked that box in terms of uh, you know on this issue. You really need to get people in a room to discuss these um, issues, and and I don't think enough has been done there. But at the same time, even that, I mean, that's one step further. Even that will cause. Um, uh, you know lots of issues with um particularly the right wing media um complaining ab- about it as well so it comes down to whether um universities really have the stomach to to make progress on this, but if they don't the the outcomes are not going to change and that's the that's the reality.
1: And I mean, this is interesting, isn't it, Selena? Because you know, on one level, what you could argue is that Amate is saying, "Well, you know, these kind of online modules don't work. So, if you really want to indoctrinate students, <laughs> get them in a room, lock the door, and get them, talk their racism out of them." Now. Um, you know, on one level, that's about the kind of effectiveness of these approaches. But on another level, you know, I can see how people might write that up into something even more, you know, shocking than the, than the way that these modules have been written up.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that there's two real questions here, which is, um, first of all, should universities, uh, do they have the legitimacy to have, uh, expectations of, uh, community standards and values that go beyond what would be expected in everyday society? So. You know, within within the current laws, and I think that's one question. I think the second is then if it decides that there does need to be um, a, a advocacy around particular issues, it you know is the kind of mandatory online training the right route to raise people's consciousness and get people to buy into that and surface some of the issues that people might have uh, in relation to those subjects, whether it be you know racism, sexual harassment, uh, what for the, the topic is. Um, and, and, I, and I think we kind of, you know, again, is, is this an issue that's really worthy of, of, of too much discussion outside the individual university concerned in, in terms of the online training? I, I kind of doubt that because universities know their own audiences. These things need to be seen in the wider context of, uh, you know, induction, re-induction. Um, for some courses, it will be around professional standards and values. You know, there's lots of different ways in which these issues can be tackled. In, in my own personal view, I think most of the universities I've been at, most of these issues are better tackled at a local level within, a, a, you know, the smaller community that that operates around the course. Um, so certainly that would be what I would be looking for rather than something that was rolled out alongside your health and safety manual training <laughs> <Yeah>. online module.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell you, what is the right solution here from a sort of PR and media point of view? Is, is the trick here to sort of, you know, head down uh, the newspaper stories will pass. We're doing the right thing internally. Let's crack on. Or is it that you know the sector should more perhaps forcefully make the case for these sorts of interventions, even if this particular intervention isn't particularly effective?
3: I think I think the sector should just do what is effective. Um, whatever they do, whatever they don't do, is going to be um, uh, there's going to be pushback. Um, and in fact, there's an argument to say that the more the more pushback <laughs> the, the more um you know some of this stuff might actually be working because it, it it's showing that it is on the agenda but um so I, so I so i think there's that that element of it look things are only going in 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 one direction and i think um the sector just needs to to knuckle down I, I think the bit that's always missing from these conversations though and i guess it's partly because of the way they're framed is you know what what's the actual problem we're trying to solve here and a lot of the people criticizing this don't have very many answers on that and we don't talk enough about the actual tangible inequalities that there are in higher education whether you're talking about the lack of diversity of staff whether we're talking about uh, unequal outcomes um for for students of color um in relation to white students so and I don't think and and you know there are actually very few debates about these issues um there's there's just um you know one side and the other side and they're shouting at their own constituencies and their own you know, they're getting upset at each other. But I've, I've I've not actually seen any debates about these issues and that makes it really challenging because the people who are saying, Oh, this is all, you know, woke, whatever there was a comment at the Tory Party conference actually, where Oliver Dowden gets confronted by a member of the party saying, you know, um, you know, would the suffragettes be woke, you know, today that's that's actually a very rare um that's actually a very rare um encounter. Um because people are not challenged on, okay If you think that Going down this route, doing this training, doing this thing is the wrong thing to do. How do you propose that we tackle these other these inequalities that exist? This is part of what we're doing, and I think that's the bit that's missing. The journalists don't do it, you know. The media don't challenge on on that front. Um, so I think it's really about just bringing this back to whenever you know universities do or have to respond. It's bringing us back to that and saying, "Fine, you may not be happy about this, but what do you propose we do about the fact that you know there are no senior." Black academics in, in, you know, universities. You know, what's what's your solution to that? And and I, I mean, they just don't have the answers. That's the reality
1: so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE do head to the website to find out more about our various subscriptions so thanks very much to Selena Amate, Mark Mike everyone at Team Wonky that makes the show happen and until next week stay Wonky (laughs)